to the last sermon in a series. It's the 12th message, end of Peter's first letter to the church in Asia Minor, full of Gentiles who have become Christians. And it's just four verses, but a whole lot here and very relevant, as all of his letter is, but certainly relevant to us in our day. So listen to what the Lord would say to us through Peter. By Sylvanus, and we mentioned a number of weeks ago, it's a nickname for Silas, a faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we can't thank you enough for what you've taught us through your servant Peter. Not only with the words of this letter, but our memory of his life. And how you took him from fishing through many twists and turns, the impetuous Peter, the arrogant one, the one who wanted to win at all cost, the one who was negatively disposed to your plans, Lord Jesus, and then when his butt was on the line, he chose to save his own skin, and how you, by your grace, took time before you ascended to go to that beach and restore him to the true grace of the gospel, which is loving you. And Lord, we've seen in his life after Pentecost how he went from arrogant to humble. He went from negative to positive. He went from hopeless to hopeful. He went from sadness to joy, even in the midst of his suffering. Lord, we know that you did that for him by the power of your Holy Spirit, and we know you can do it for us, and so we ask in this final message that you would speak to us in these words we often just read over quickly, for we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Sixteen years ago, Bruce Edwards died of Lou Gehrig's disease. He was 49 years old. Thirty years earlier, he went to work for a guy from Kansas City, Missouri, and they made a name for themselves. Together, they racked up 39 professional wins on the PGA Tour. And if it hadn't been for the arcane yesteryear rules of the majors, Bruce Edwards would have been with Tom Watson as he won all eight majors, but as it turned out, he was only with him for perhaps his greatest major, the U.S. Open. Now, I know many of you could care less about golf. <laughs> I've even had people say, why do you talk about it so much? Because there's so many life lessons there. And even if you don't like golf, I bet you've seen this shot. Bruce Edwards standing next to 
Tom, or Tom Watson. He's on the 17th fringe of the green. He's playing for the U.S. Open victory over one named Jack Nicholas. Bruce Edwards says to him, put it close, this chip. Tom Watson says, hell, put it close, I'm putting it in. And seconds later, he did. And he ran all the way around the green, and you've probably seen that clip. It's interesting, though, a few years later, Tom Watson's skills began to diminish. Everybody knew it, including Watson himself, and Bruce Edwards was contacted by another professional golfer, some of whom you, some of you know him by name, Greg Norman. And he asked Bruce Edwards to be his caddy. And Edwards did what any first-class caddy would do. He went to Watson and he said, what do you think I should do? And Watson said, Bruce, it's a wonderful opportunity. I'd do it. And he did. He was with Greg Norman for three years and then he came back to Watson. And he stayed as the caddy for Tom Watson for the remaining months of his life until he couldn't carry a golf bag anymore. Somebody has said the best caddies in the world have more than a passing relationship with their bosses. And that was true of Edwards and Watson. When Edwards died, Watson said, I'm dedicating my life to finding a cure for this wretched disease. Carl Jackson, who used to caddy for Ben Crenshaw, he's a Hall of Fame caddy, he said this, I'm hitting every shot with Ben, good or bad. I'm having fun when he has fun, and I'm suffering when he's suffering. And when I make a mistake, it kills me. Not long after Edwards returned to Watson, a reporter asked him, what's the difference between Norman and Watson? Edwards' response was swift. He said, well, here's the difference. Greg Norman will hit a beautiful drive long down the fairway, right in the middle, and will come to the ball, and he'll find it in a divot. And Norman will look at me and say, can you believe this? It was a perfect drive, and look what I'm stuck with, a divot. Can you believe the luck? Edwards said, Watson will hit the same drive just as far down the fairway. He'll come to the ball and find it in a divot, and then Watson will smile at me and say, watch what I'll do with this one. Winston Churchill once said, a pessimist can find difficulty in every opportunity, and an optimist can find opportunity in every difficulty. And then he said this, there doesn't seem to be too much use for being a pessimist. And yet most people are. And we've seen it in spades since March. At a time when all around us we're hearing negative voices, it's easy to play into that. And I don't believe there's any distinction between the number of people who are pessimistic who name the name of Christ and those who don't. 
Years ago, I went to a hospital in Clearfield one night with John Barber. I told him I was going. He said, could I ride along? I said, sure. We were going up there to see a guy who was like my second father. When we got in his room in the hospital, we didn't know, but it was about 36 hours before he died. Never forget, we rounded the corner, came in his room, and he said, hey, boys, how are you doing? Well, actually, he said it this way, hey, boys, how are you doing? We said, Don, we're doing great. How about you? I said, on a scale from one to 10, how are you, Don? He kind of went up on his pillow and he said, I'm an 11. Now, what would cause a man 36 hours before his death to say, I'm an 11? The same thing that would cause Tom Watson to say, watch what I do with this. Peter talks about it at the end of his letter. Most miss this, including me, until a couple of weeks ago. But you don't want to miss this. There's there is final words in this letter, and they are crucially important to us. So let's dig in. First of all, notice, if you will, his regarding. Look at verse 12a, the beginning. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written to you briefly. Again, the Latin name for Silas is Sylvanus. And what he's saying is, he is my faithful brother, and by him I'm writing to you. Did you hear about the old man who went to the post office to write a letter to his daughter? He was at it for about 20 minutes, but he kept ripping up the paper because his hand was so shaky he could hardly write. Finally, in desperation, he looks over and there's a young woman. He said, would you help me? She said, sir, absolutely, I'd love to. What do you need? He said, how about if I dictate a letter and you write it to my daughter? She said, absolutely, and she wrote in beautiful penmanship, beautiful cursive. After 20 minutes, they were done. He thanked her and said, by the way, would you add a PS? Please forgive the handwriting. Peter says nothing like that. He doesn't apologize for Silas. He actually commends him. He highlights him, and there's a lot of speculation as to why. Some say it's because Silas was with Paul on the second missionary journey, and they went to this area in Asia Minor where they met some of the people who will receive this letter, and that's the reason he commends him. Maybe that's true. Another reason is because when you look at the Greek in this letter, it's very sophisticated, very complex, and people say there's no way that came from the pen of a Galilean fisherman, and that's probably true as well. Peter spoke, and Silas wrote, and he put it in beautiful Greek prose. But regardless of why, notice that Silas's connection to this letter is offered in a conclusion. Peter says, I regard him as a faithful brother. And if you look at that word regard in Greek, it literally means to have drawn a conclusion. Somebody has said it's harder to be openly positive about someone than to give him a zinger. 
And the reason is because it's hard for us to be positive about another person when we are feeling so insecure about ourselves. Peter doesn't have that problem. Throughout this letter, he affirms the essence of the gospel. And the essence of the gospel is this. I can accept being accepted by the Lord Jesus Christ, and that can allow me to love and affirm others knowing that Christ has loved and affirmed me. In other words, the Lord has done for me what no one else can do, and I'm satisfied with his work, therefore I can love others without expecting anything in return. Years ago in August, I got a call from my aunt. And in her southern drawl, she said, your cousin David has died. I said, how? And she said, he shot himself. She said, I'd like you to come and do the service. And I said, absolutely, I'll come. And I hung up the phone and I thought to myself, what in the world did you agree to? What in the world can I say? I had been with him months before at Christmas time. I knew him well, but oh Lord, how in the world can I how can I speak at his funeral? I must have started and stopped six messages. I couldn't get away from the thought, I've got to do this, and I don't want to, and I don't know what to say. Finally, on the plane flight to Atlanta, it all came to me. And I stood in that room full of hundreds of strangers. I spoke about my cousin and about depression and about Jesus. I went on, you may believe this easily, but you know, it doesn't normally happen <laughs> at a memorial service. I went on for 45 minutes. And honestly, I, you couldn't hear a pin drop, or you could. But when I finished, nobody said anything to me. Absolutely no comments, no critique, not even, not even from family. Nobody said anything. I flew home and a year later I got a letter from my mother. She said, you might be interested in this, and it was a letter inside her letter is from a Jewish businessman who was famous in Atlanta. He had written to my uncle a day later, and he said, I couldn't get that message out of my head. It's the clearest presentation of Jesus I've ever heard, and I've given my life to him. And as soon as I finished reading this page-long letter, I called my mother and I said, Mom, why did you send me that letter? She said, well, when I got it, 
a year ago, I said to your dad, I'm gonna send it to Doug, and he said, don't do it, it might go to his head. I said, then why did you send it now? She said, because I thought you should know. Peter would understand that. He doesn't wait a year. He doesn't wait for the end of the letter. Instead, he says, Silas is my faithful brother because he knows those are the words Silas needs to hear. And so does every reader. They need to hear how he feels about Silas and his ministry. And the reason Peter can do it is because he's not only secure in his faith, he's positive. And he wants to tell them that we're all in this together. He's positive enough to tell them how he really feels. Second, notice not only what Peter has said in regarding, he, notice what he says in recalling. Look at the end of verse 12. I have written to you briefly exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. What is this? Everything I've written. The entire letter is a letter of grace, the grace of God. Ten years ago, Brennan Manning published a book, All is Grace. He asked his friend and his fellow writer, Philip Yancey, to write a foreword. Here's what, some of what Yancey said. As a writer, I live daily with a daily awareness of how easy it is to edit a book. In fact, it's easier to edit a book than edit a life. When I write about what I believe and how I should live, it sounds neat and orderly, and then I try to live it out and all hell breaks loose. Regarding Brennan's memoir, I see something in a reverse pattern. By focusing on his flaws, he leaves out many of his triumphs. I keep wanting him to tell stories that put him in a good light, and there are many. But Brennan presents himself as the apostle Paul presented himself as a clay jar, a disposable container of baked dirt. There's a poem by Leonard Cohen that fits well. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And that's what Peter's saying. In fact, that's what he said throughout the letter. Somebody has said, you can't preach Jesus and yourself at the same time. In other words, you can't seek to impress other people with your glib tongue and at the same time lift up Jesus Christ. And Peter doesn't because he's too positive for that. Look what he says. All that I've told you is nothing but the true grace of God. In other words, it's not about you and not about your goodness. It's not about me and my goodness. It's about grace, his grace. It's all grace. And that's the most positive declaration that any of us can ever make. We live by grace. We screw up by grace. We're forgiven by grace. 
We triumph by grace. That's why you're positive. A few months ago, I was with a couple who've been married 60 years. Every morning, they have five devotionals they read. They said, you know, we've gone to church since we were babies. We've gone to many churches together, and we've been at Hebron for a fairly long time. But it's only been in the last year or two we've discovered something that we have never seen before in all of those years, and that is what the gospel is all about. Whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament, it's all about grace. And that's exactly what Peter is saying. Listen to how he recalls it. I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Third, notice not only his ability to regard Silas properly, his ability to recall, both of those things, very positive. Notice his rejoicing. It also is positive. Look at verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Now, he's talking about the Roman church. And amazingly, he, he says... Rome is the new Babylon, and every Jew and every Christian would understand that. The city of Rome was packed with people that were seeking power, like Washington, D.C. It was filled with people pursuing their own lusts, people pursuing their own luxury. And what Peter is saying is, the church of Jesus at Babylon in Rome is likewise chosen in Christ, and they send you greetings too. Rome was the center of religious persecution for Christians in the first century. But that isn't what grabs my attention. What grabs my attention is what he says after he talks about that church. What he says is, and so does Mark, my son. Do you remember who this man is? Jerry read about him. He's the man that traveled with Peter. He's the man that wrote the gospel of Mark based on Peter's preaching. He's the one that's been with Peter for years. But you know how he got there? He got there by blowing it with Paul. Acts 15, Jerry read it. The Bible says there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. And the word sharp, disagreement, that's one word in Greek, and it literally means a sudden convulsion, a violent emotion. In other words, Barnabas and Paul had a knockdown, drag out fight. And the reason they fought was that on the first missionary journey, this young man, John Mark, Mark, deserted and went home. And now they're getting ready for their second missionary journey. And Barnabas wants to take Mark with them. And Paul says, no way over my dead body. In other words, Barnabas wants to give Mark another chance and Paul won't. And the disagreement is so intense 
that Barnabas leaves Paul and takes Mark with him. And then Silas hooks up with Paul. Now think of what Peter's saying here. Not only do Peter and Silas greet you, not only do the saints of Jesus Christ at Rome greet you, so does my son Mark. What he is saying is, Mark is like my own flesh and blood. Think of what this means. If Mark hadn't deserted, there wouldn't have been a fight. And if there hadn't been a fight, Barnabas may never have been used by God to strengthen Mark in his faith. And if Mark's faith had not been strengthened, he would never have gotten to Peter. And if he had never gotten to Peter, he would never have written the Gospel of Mark. And none of this is lost on Peter. He recalls it. He remembers it. And he's swept away in rejoicing at the hand of God and his incomparable grace. Then fourth and finally, notice the responding. Look at verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. Now, a lot's been made over the centuries about a holy kiss. I've known people that almost demanded it from others. Seriously. The Bible says, give me a kiss. Do it. In the early church, a kiss was an essential part of Christian worship. Tertullian, one of the ancient church fathers, said it this way, what prayer is complete without a holy kiss attached? Whenever someone was baptized, there would be holy kisses distributed. And when abuses of kissing began to arise in the church, they began to define what a kiss was and, and began to regulate it. And all of those discussions are interesting, but they pale in significance to Jesus' definition of a kiss. He's just washed his disciples' feet, including Peter's. The Bible says he gets up off the ground. And after he says a few things, he says this. No longer do I call you servants. For a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I now call you friends. For all that I've learned from my father, I've made known to you. Now, when he uses that word friend, he's using not a Hebrew word because there wasn't one. The Jews had no concept of a true selfless friendship. When Jesus says, I no longer call you servants but friends, he's using a Greek word, philios, which comes from another Greek word, philema, which means kiss. Jesus is using the most intimate Greek word he can find to say, that's who you are to me. You are my intimate friends. So when Peter says, greet one another with kiss, what he's really saying is realize who you are. You are all friends because Jesus has made us his friend. You and I are bought with the same blood. We have an intimate connection with each other in Jesus Christ. 20 years ago, Payne Stewart's plane went down. 
another golfer. Went down in a field in South Dakota, ran out of jet fuel. You may remember that. At his memorial service in Orlando, his friend Paul Azinger spoke. And one of the things he said was he recalled that day how he and all of the funeral procession drove for miles through Orlando. And if you've been to Orlando, you know there are a number of toll roads, and this was before Easy Pass. And he said, we didn't even have to slow down. We went right through. All because of pain. He said it this way. As we were driving through those toll booths without stopping, I couldn't help but think of pain smiling and said, look what I've done for you. And what Peter is saying is, that's exactly what Jesus says to us. What he's saying is, I can never forget not only what Jesus has done for me, but what he's doing for me every moment of the day. That's why in Mena, South Dakota, in that field, there is a stone marker, and on that stone marker are all the names of those who died, and then these words, he drew me up from a pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, he set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. Now David wrote those words, but Peter's living them. And what Peter is saying to you and me is if you're in Christ, you're living them too. Winston Churchill was right. The pessimist sees difficulty in every opportunity. And the optimist sees opportunity in every difficulty. And what Peter is saying is, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be the greatest optimist on the face of the earth. Use your head, man. Think of what Jesus has done for you and think of what He's doing for you every minute of every day. He's interceding for you. He's praying for you. He's advocating for you. He's representing you before the Father. And not only that, He is with you every moment of the day. How can you be so blind to allow pessimism to live in your heart? It's easy. It's natural. It's human. And it's demonic. In light of all that, can you think of any good reason that when somebody says to you, how are you doing? You couldn't be like my friend Don Huffman and say, I'm an 11. At least an 11. Peter could say that. And he says to us, we can too. Choose to do it. It's a great letter. I hate that it's over. But it isn't. We continue to live it out. Think about that. Amen.